0: I have never had a job without a support person that I was successful in. It's never successful in any job unless I had support people, friends, people I had worked with and I trusted. And I bet that's the same in law, in medicine, in nursing, in business. So when we get together and support each other, it's a reality check it's a boost to our confidence it's strength in numbers it's more brains working on the solution there's no downside hello and welcome to be
1: the wolf i am your host jenea barnes Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators taming the wilderness, collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, everybody.
2: Welcome to this episode of Be the Wolf. We're going to talk about living to work or working to live, that overwhelm, that pushing and leaning into burnout, and really we're going to get down and dirty about that When your job becomes your identity, and that's really what happens when we're in that place of living to work and working to live, and it's like, and it's hard to let go. It's hard to take a step back so that you can actually allow the other things to encroach into your life, the good things that we all say that we want. I am here today with Dr. Susan Landers. She is an amazing woman who's had a big career doing lots of things that have made really big differences. And I remember one of the things you told me about your career was that you said it was so rewarding because you could see the actual impact you were making. You could see the changes happening right before your eyes. So I will let Dr. Susan tell you, tell us about what it is that she is doing now, and maybe she'll touch a little bit on what she was doing, but we'll definitely get into that story.
0: Oh, hi, Janaya. Thank you so much for the invitation. What I'm doing now is in retirement, after 34 years of practicing as a physician, I'm helping other working mothers. I'm supporting women who are trying to balance a career and motherhood based on all of my experiences, all of my struggles and challenges I am active on social media. I have a newsletter. I have a newsletter on LinkedIn. I post there frequently. I have a Facebook group as well. And I've really enjoyed talking to working mothers and supporting working mothers because what I'm seeing is the same sorts of mistakes that I made in my 40s are being made by young working mothers now, and maybe it's even a little bit worse. The pandemic made things stressful for every, everybody, the children, the moms, dads, and anxiety is through the roof. But this notion of having to be a perfect working mother hold down a career, manage your family, take care of your household, be a good wife or partner, it's become almost overwhelming. And the message on social media is that it can be done perfectly in a curated, (laughs) beautiful way. The children are well-dressed, the apartment or home looks beautiful, and you're balanced and you've exercised and you're working on things and you're meeting with friends and people are seeing images of an unrealistic life. Having been there myself and looking at these images on social media, I decided to put my toe in the water and speak out about what I thought working women were getting wrong. I think what they're doing is what my generation did in our 30s. They're trying to be perfect moms. They like their career. Generally, they're fulfilled in their work. If they're not badly overworked, they're trying to balance home life and work life. And they're really struggling because it is a lot. And I'm here to tell people that being a working mom is really difficult. My own daughter the other day said, mom, why is this so hard? I said, honey, you work full time in the pediatric ICU as an RN. You're working on a master's to become a nurse practitioner. You have two children, ages six and two, and you have a good marriage. And how do you think any of that is supposed to be easy? And she said, well, I guess I thought it would be easier. I said, it's not easy. It's just not easy. And I don't know why you expect it to be when you have like three or four jobs going at once. And so I thought if I weighed in with my older age and my wisdom, that maybe I could help younger working moms, career moms, and just kind of do a reality check. Where are they? What are they trying to accomplish? What are they sacrificing along the way? And I have so many stories, Janae. I have so many stories that when I retired, I wrote a book. I wrote a memoir about my crazy life called So Many Babies. And I want that book to be reassuring for other working mothers. I think one of the
2: things that you touched on, well, you you hit us over the head with, and I love that, is that it's hard and it doesn't have to be perfect. It can be messy. And I think so many women in particular have this idea and have been brought up generations to generations. These beliefs have been handed down mm-hmm. where have to be perfect. You cannot make a mistake. If you make a mistake, you will be judged. You will be thrown out. You will be like, you'll not, you'll lose your job. And I know men struggle with this too. I think because women have had to fight to get into the workforce in a different way than men did, there's this idea that maybe we're subconsciously, maybe we're not supposed to be here. So if we make a mistake, It's going to be detrimental.
0: Right. Well, or women think they have to work twice as hard to look just as good as the men. And I grew up in an era where there were very few women in medicine when I trained. And now it's probably 50-50. But lots of professions have a majority of men and women want to be in those professions and have careers. And they're struggling to do a good job, but they're carrying a bigger piece of the mental load for their household than their husbands are. Lots of recent surveys have shown us that we think differently than men. We worry about the pediatrician appointment and the orthodontist and the soccer team uniform and the school teacher Meeting, and we worry about our project at work, and we worry about what's for dinner, and we worry about well, did the nanny or the housekeeper get paid? And that just doesn't register with our partners in general. Not like it does with us. So here we are in the workplace trying to do a good job, whether we're a lawyer or accountant or a physician or a nurse or whatever we do, and we're working just as hard as men do. And then there's this, you know, is my kid sick? Does he need to go to the pediatrician? Another visit to the ENT? Oh, do I have to have her hearing checked? Winter braces. And then there's financial worries. And so we build all this stuff up and we're all very competent and very motivated, but it is a burden. It really is a burden to try to do it all. And i have been there. I tried to do it all in my 40s. And it wasn't until I had a third child and I became depressed. I kept working while I was depressed. But after I recovered from my depression, I looked around and I said, this is not working for me. I'm working too many hours. I don't see my children enough. I'm not exercising. I had one single friend and that's not enough. And we didn't get together more than once every couple of weeks. I wasn't talking to my old friends. I had moved to a new city and everything just snowballed on me. And I said, I've got to get my priorities straight. I was in therapy and thankfully a therapist helped me choose my priorities. Of course, he had me make a list and put everything on the list. And you know what? Like all these women today, I didn't even have myself on my list. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Everybody else was there. Everybody else that I loved and cared about and things I wanted to do. But where was I? I was not anywhere on the list. Well, And and
2: one of the things that, you know, again, so much of our programming, our subconscious programming that dictates the way we live, happens with what we grow up with, what we see. And so we're coming in now, like with Gen Z, I think is starting to see a different sort of home life. So Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of decades. But for the rest of us, we saw this place where the women took care of the kids. The women, the mom was who you called if something happened at school. The mom was the one that had to leave work,
0: all Mm -hmm. of those things.
2: And typically the men don't think about it because historically they haven't seen the men take care of that. So that's not in their frame of reference. That's what they're supposed to be thinking about. But as women, you're supposed to be thinking about that. Plus, you want to have some autonomy and some value of doing, serving a purpose and providing and adding to the world in that way. So now you've got this one job in the back of your head and you've got this current job that you're doing and you're absolutely right across the board women have been taught to be caretakers because they mm-hmm. were the caretaker of the family take care mm-hmm. of t- take care of the people when they're sick the children mm-hmm. the husband mm-hmm. when they're sick take care if you're a secretary or a nurse this is something that blows my mind mm-hmm. and women previously women were allowed to be teachers secretaries
0: nurses <laughs>
2: So the message that sends to the world and anybody looking upon it is that women, one, women are only trusted to care for people who are sick
0: and Or children. to educate people. Right, right. But they yes. were
2: not, they were not trusted to actually have responsibility and make the decision. They were only able to make those decisions if someone was sick or they were a child
0: right well now things are different thankfully Thank- i mean you you walk into a hospital room and you've got a 50/50 chance of having a a woman be your surgeon so or a, or a, a, t- a law firm and the woman is an attorney so now we're everywhere right and we've put our foot in the career doors we're professional women we have full time jobs and we're still being the caretakers right we are right. we are still taking on that burden of doing everything i think back on my mother who was an elementary school school librarian so she left the house when we did to go to school she got home later there was a housekeeper that had us do homework and cook supper, then she came home, and my dad got home afterwards. But my mom did not go to any school plays, any sports team functions, any—she did. She did go to piano recitals, but she didn't go to things in my life the way I have been attending to my children's lives. And on purpose, I said, I want to be a part of my children's lives. And so here's this one half of me. Oh, I'm a doctor. I'm in the NICU. I'm taking care of sick patients. And the other part of me is I'm a mom and I want to be a part of my three kids' lives. I want to be there when they fall down, if I need to pick them up or work with the teacher, work with a tutor or talk to the doctor. And it is really difficult to do two things at once. It, yeah. I mean, it's impossible. And we all try to do it. When we think about it, we say, yeah, you're right. It's impossible. You can't have a sick kid at home and not worry and go to work and work as a nurse in on the surgical floor. That's impossible. Your sick kid is in the back of your brain and then you're taking care of this patient. Women do that all the time. We're always worrying about something. I don't know if it's attached to the X chromosome or what, but I have never talked to a career mom, a full-time working mom who doesn't worry about her children during the day or her spouse or partner or her elderly parents. Your generation, Janae, is is now worrying about taking care of parents like us. The baby boomers are getting older and you're going to have to worry about, them not just your children. And well, so we have all- yeah. And, and it's a really funny thing too because
2: a lot, you know, I'm Gen X, so a lot of us Gen X's didn't really have our parents at home because, you know, your generation above was the first yeah, generation yeah. that was working a lot and so we were left home to fend for ourselves. And then it gets to the point, and I have so many people in my generation, people that I know, that are just pissed when they're very oh. oh. because, we because so it's calm. like, yeah. you, didn't, you didn't take care of me, and now <laughs> I have to take care of you. Are you kidding me? I hadn't I, thought about that. I get that <laughs> you have to put food on the table, and you had to do all those things. I understand that. But... Really? Now I have to be the
0: one to make sure your needs are met? Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought of it from that perspective. And I just went through this with my own parents who were both in their 90s before they died. And I felt a little resentment. It was like I'm driving over to this other state, talking with doctors and housekeepers and caregivers, and I'm taking my time off to go take care of my parents. And it's hard. It's really, really hard to do that and have a full-time job. Well, and and you said
2: your mom was not there at all of the events and stuff. So you probably grew up with kind of some of that Gen X feeling. (laughs) Yes, I did.
0: I did. I did.
2: So you ended up, you were working really hard and you said that you were like, your job was your life. Yes. And you... You had that place where you hit the depression, you started Mm -hmm. working a therapist, Mm -hmm. She she had you do the, you know, make the list. Make the list, choose your priorities. Make the list. And what did you discover when you made the list and like really looking at your priorities,
0: what you wanted versus what you have? I was in academic medicine at the time, doing clinical research and teaching, working for a medical school. And I decided that all of my research projects, I had a couple of papers in the work and a couple of journals interested in what I had written, but I decided all those projects were not as important as spending time with my family and having a decent personal life. I mean, I, it had worn me down to a nubbin of a person and I was working 10-hour days and taking night calls Once or twice a week and not seeing my kids and working on weekends. And it just was so much that I said, I've got to choose. Do I want to have a family and still be a physician? Or do I want to be some famous academician? Because I knew I never would be a famous researcher. I guess I thought I could be. And so I abandoned that. I said, "Okay, I'm just going to be a good doctor because I knew I could do that. And I took a reprieve. I left the NICU, the neonatal ICU, and I went to work for an HMO as a medical director for two years to kind of get my head screwed back on right and spend more time with my family and imagine myself a physician executive. And we did some fun travel and I took some courses on how to be, you know, a physician executive. And it was very, alluring, but it wasn't being a doctor. Mm. And so my husband and I decided that in order for both of us to be happy, we were going to move to another city and get jobs where both of us could be in private practice. He's a pediatric nephrologist. I was a neonatologist. I got back into clinical medicine and absolutely loved it. I worked in a practice Uh, I joined a practice of nine men who all were married to stay-at-home moms, and so the first year I had to kind of literally break them in to family issues. They wanted to start at 7 in the morning, and I would say things like, well, it's really hard to get here at 7 a.m. because I have to get up at 6 and leave the house at 6.30 and my kids are not even fed and dressed and on the bus. Can we please start at 8? And they, they agreed. They listened because they all had children, too. And they right. liked that change. And then we started talking about vacation and scheduling. And we started talking about leaving work in the middle of the day to catch something at the kids' school. And they liked the changes. Uh-huh. But I had a big mouth. You know, I was one of these people who said, Wait a minute, if you guys want to be good dads and good doctors, don't you want to see your kid in the school play? Don't you want me to cover for you while you take that afternoon off? And so we we did some give and take, and they learned to be family friendly. And within two years, I love this story, one of the senior partners stood up in a meeting, and he he was kind of, you know, always begrudging changes, but he would go along with things. And he stood up in a meeting and he said, I think we need another woman in the group. I've really liked the changes that we've made to our group. Wow. I was in heaven. That is amazing. I know. I know. So if you talk to men, if you work in a male-dominated environment and you have children and you have a family and you want to be invested in your partnership, they're doing the same thing. You just have to remind them. They want the same things with their marriage and their children, but they're not used to making adjustments like women do.
2: Right. And, well, the structure, right, the structure of the business, that's immovable. and yeah. One of the things that is so important, and this is so hard for a lot of women, again, because you make that list of the priorities and you're not even on there, is to actually speak up and use your voice. Yes. And to use it in a way that you can be heard. So this Mm -hmm. isn't without flying off the handle, because sometimes you hold it in, hold it in, and then it just comes out and nobody's receptive, or you're just kind of real meek and you're like... Um. Yeah, so I think that we should maybe do this. And they're like, what? What? And by that time, you just feel smaller and smaller and you don't even want to say a thing. So learning to have that confidence to use your voice and communicate effectively is something that's really powerful. It's a be-the-wolf quality, and you have it. It is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> now,
0: and you learn the hard way that you can't be meek because no one will listen, and you'll get trampled on. And you can't be a, a raging biatch because they'll keep calling you that, Right. and no one will listen to you. And you have to kind of be strategic and pick and choose which meeting, which gathering you want to bring it up. And you want to, how you want to bring it up and how you want to include them in the decision. And that's being a wolf. That's, you know, planning. It's not like you're stalking your prey, but you're planning your operation. You really are. And I think women have to adjust to male-dominated workplaces. There's one other thing I learned. I'm not sure that being a wolf helps this, but men decide a lot of things outside of meetings. Mm -hmm. And they come into the meeting and they've already made up their minds. Women like to go to meetings and discuss things and then decide. It's very different, in my view, how decisions are made in the workplace between men and women. I don't know what your experience has been.
2: I'm always looking for the subconscious underlines because that's the stuff I help unwind in people's minds when we do the work that we do. So, you know, men stereotypically, of course, need to come off as strong and confident. That's how they've been raised, that they must be in business. And so it makes sense that they would need to have it figured out before they walk into the meeting, they have to be strong and confident. It doesn't matter if they have doubts, they just have to come off mm-hmm. like they know what they're talking about and they've decided and that's all there is to it. Whereas for women, it's typically more okay to doubt yourself and question and be like, maybe this way, maybe that way. Right. So it makes sense too as, you know, this is all very stereotypical. Women
0: like to think out loud. We love right. to bounce ideas off of each other. And, and two or three women in a workplace, I think, can really get to the bottom of what things are going on, what's bubbling up, what issues are important. And in meetings, it's important to have an ally, too, Part of being the wolf is knowing when to be part of a pack and knowing when to say, okay, gals, we got to gang up and get this call schedule changed or get this work schedule changed or there's too much travel going on. And you're going to have to enlist allies to go to bat with you to make your point.
2: Well, and one of the things I see that you worked with you was they all wanted the same thing. They did. So you were able to put in your input and they realized they wanted the same thing. But if you are not being the wolf and you're just staying in your little corner, putting your head down, trying Mm -hmm. not to rock the boat, you don't actually get to connect with people and find out if people want the same thing. I was just reading an article today that was saying how management thinks that there is greater job satisfaction than ever, that employees are happy. But but the reality is that they're not. not. There's that disconnect that people are not coming together and communicating the needs. Right. And not so is it the employees that aren't speaking to each other and saying collectively, "Hey, we're not okay with this situation." One of my clients just advocated and led the led the way she's being the world led right. the way to bring the conversation for her team getting a pay raise good to the upper management and it didn't quite work out the way she wanted. So then she went to the director. And, got, and so now the director is on their side. And who knows what will happen. But the thing is, is there is a collective need. And you don't figure that out unless you're communicating with each other. And so often when mm-hmm. you are in running the work in the working to live, right? Like running yeah. out, trying to do it all. There is none of this ask for help. There's none of this connection and communication that creates the possibilities to figure out like, oh, there's a whole lot of us that want the same thing. Yes. And we can't necessarily just assume that management doesn't, like how are they going to know unless we communicate it?
0: Right. You know? in, in the field of nursing, I've been reading that Women nurses who have a manager who cares about them and their needs are doing better, have less burnout, less anxiety. If there's open communication, things are better. And the manager goes to bat for the group of women nurses. My daughter was telling me she liked her supervisor because She always checked in to see how things were going. Actually, the director oversees her. She supervises other nurses, but there's communication there. And her direct superior knows whether or not she's okay and what's going on with her team. I think the same is true in business. And maybe there are not enough women managers to make a difference yet. I've seen some of the data that shows that presidents and vice presidents and managers are in business are predominantly men. So women are going to have to figure out how to band together or approach their managers who are men with their concerns like your client did. They are. And there's no other way to get it done because they don't think like we do.
2: Well, and the other piece is like when you said being strategic. Think about what it is that they want. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. What and are the priorities? What's what? What do they really most want this week, this month? Right.
2: Well, and I see. I see a lot of management trainings and stuff that people are definitely. There is a shift in the way people are presenting good leaders, and. Yeah. I know there's this Simon Sinek story that he tells about this guy, a barista at the coffee shop at the Ritz somewhere. And he said something to him is like, oh, how are you today? Oh, great. And he asked Simon Sinek, asked him and said, you know, something about do you love your job? And the barista was like, yes, I love my job. And anyway, they go on to have a conversation. Evidently, he works somewhere else and he uh-huh. doesn't like his job there. And he's a very different person, not as friendly, not as open. And the difference was, so Simon Sinek asked, well, what, what do they are what are they doing here at the Ritz that they're not doing at this other place? Uh-huh. And he said, well, my managers walk around every day. And they check in on me. They say, "What Mm do you need anything? How can I help? How's it going? And so it was that I care moment that made him happy to do his job. And I've had well over 20 jobs in my lifetime. And I had two great bosses. And they did the same thing. They cared. Right. It, it felt like they cared about my personal life. Now, they were both tough as nails when you didn't do your shit. <laughs> tough right. as right. nails. But they cared. They cared what was going on in your life. They cared about you. And they took the time to show it every day by having a personal connection. Personal, yes. and, but still professional, connecting
0: yes. with you. I agree. I've had some bad bosses, some great bosses. The worst boss I ever had was a guy who listened to me tell him that my nanny was having trouble working more than 50 hours a week and that I needed to change my schedule. And he looked at me, I kid you not, and he said, maybe you need to hire a weekend nanny too. And I said, that is not the point. The point is... I'm working way more hours than we agreed I was going to and taking way more call. He was totally unsympathetic, totally unsympathetic. And that was one of the reasons that I left clinical medicine. And then when I went into private practice, my boss was a family man, an old friend. We had trained together and he was willing to listen to any suggestions that I had and that practice grew from nine men and one woman to 10 men and 10 women currently wow. and so and the women like to say oh you braved the way for family friendly practices and i said well maybe i did but i felt like i just let the guys know what we needed what what we needed to think about how we needed to be a practice together. Because in medicine, practices are kind of like family. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, you work with these people every day and you're in the in the ICU and you're busy and you're taking care of patients and some days you're up to your elbows and alligators and, you know, you know each other really well. And so making those kinds of decisions in the calm, collected conference room later then becomes easier because you all work together so closely but i had a great boss in that situation he would he would he was receptive to any possibilities anything someone wanted to do that was better more effective more efficient he would listen and he would say fine okay go work it out and bring it back to me after you figured it out well and the big thing about that and
2: this goes for any kind of leader if you want to be a good leader if y'all are listening and you are up for promotion you want to be a good leader the most important quality that you need is to have a high self esteem so that you can do not take things personally because mm. <laughs> The fact that you just said he said, "Okay, you go work it out (laughs) means that his value, his worth isn't on whether that thing works or not. He can let you have the reign to do that. He can relinquish the control because he has the confidence enough in himself as, you know, a partner, a leader to be able to let go of the control and this is one of the big things that a lot of us women are doing why we're burning out is because we feel like we have to control
0: everything oh yes we are so into fixing problems taking control being responsible and that's fine but we're not the only people in our workplaces who can do the job But you know what we're really good at? We are really good at connecting with others. And I think part of being the wolf is figuring out how to bring younger women, more timid colleagues, women who are not as outgoing as you are into your orbit so that you have an ally, you have a colleague at work, you have a support person at work. I have never had a job without a support person that I was successful in. It's never successful in any job unless I had support people, friends, people I had worked with and I trusted. And I bet that's the same in law, in medicine, in nursing, in business. So when we get together and support each other, it's a reality check. It's a boost to our confidence. It's strength in numbers. It's more brains working on the solution. Right. There's no downside, unless the, bi- unless the group gets too big, there's no downside to having colleagues and friends at work. It's, it's incredibly important to your well-being. You
2: can mm-hmm. survive another day in a terrible job if you have support and connection. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said about if you're the one that has the confidence, pull the people that are maybe sitting on the sidelines under your wing, connect with them. Because one of one of the things about that particular client I'm talking about is she's talking to a lot of the her coworkers. And they're scared. They were scared to rock the boat. They were scared to say anything. But and, and, you know, before we started working together, she would not have done that either. She wouldn't Mm. have been able to as eloquently advocate for herself, for the team, because she was one of those people that held back and and then blew up. So it was oh, like, oh. but when you have that support and you feel like you are not the only one being the wolf, you know, sometimes we have to go first.
0: Right. And show makes a big difference. Yes.
2: Show people the way this is what this podcast is all about is somebody that's a generation above me mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. being the wolf and at 40 took that step back because you, you realized you were. Burning out, everything was not going the way you wanted it to. I have a quick question though. When you were writing the papers, going after that, what was the thoughts about why you were doing that? Was it just because you thought you were supposed what was it for you?
0: I think it was the pre-med student, straight A student, want the recognition mentality. I think I grew up in a family where I did not get recognized either my feelings or my behavior, unless it was bad. And so I learned to get reward externally. And, And it took me a while to figure that out, which I finally did in my 30s and 40s through the process of having children and becoming a mother. But... When I was successfully a neonatologist, I enjoyed mentoring other people because I had learned that skill. I had learned that giving external rewards, giving pats on the back, giving recognition was so crucial. I you know after a difficult baby a big resuscitation and everything has just calmed down and two or three hours have gone by, I would go by to and say to that nurse you did a great job, or I would say to the intern that was a great resuscitation you were so calm you did everything perfectly. People just relax and smile when you say positive feedback. Yeah, and another thing that wolves can do in the workplace is give that positive feedback to others around them. It sets the tone for the whole place. I can't think of a workplace where it wouldn't make the tone and the culture of the workplace better. Yeah,
2: and... The feedback is so important because I'm just going to say it straight across the board. Most people don't have the self-confidence that they don't need that external feedback. They they have now right. the question, even the wolves. We go right. through that like questioning like, oh, I don't know, maybe. So that little nod to something you did well, it mm-hmm. also reminds you and helps you focus on what you have, right? So a skill that you have, that ability mm-hmm. to stay calm during that process. Right. Oh, that's something I have. We're so normally focused on what it is that we lack. Right. So I Our brain is like, oh, blah, blah. so when you take that time to give somebody positive feedback, you're reminding them of what they actually have. And there's a little trick too. If you have to give negative feedback, you sandwich it in between positive feedback. So you say, Ah, I really like the way you did this. This is the thing you can work on. And overall, this is really great.
0: Such great advice, really. And And I guess I learned that by trial and error. um, Because in medicine, women were We were pretty much thrown in in the 70s and 80s, and we had to sink or swim. And you learn those things in the workplace, regardless of what you do for a living. You learn how to get along. The other thing that I wanted to bring up for your listeners was the importance of having a mentor.
1: Mm -hmm. We talked
0: about social connection. But having a mentor is crucial, I think, and I had one almost at every stage throughout my career. Somebody that was generally 10 or 12 years older than me had been through what I was going through, whether it was academics or private practice, had also had a family, maybe was or was not married to another physician, but they knew the culture, and they could tell me the things that had worked for them or the things that didn't work for them in a certain situation. I found mentors to be really, really helpful throughout my career. Yeah,
2: that's it's, it's why the coaching industry has blown up, because... Yeah. Not everybody has access to maybe a mentor in their field, but they want to continue to strive. And that goes, you and I talked about having that learning growth mindset. When Mm -hmm. you have that learning growth mindset, one, it helps keep you happy. It is a necessity for staying healthy and happy with your mental health and everything. But having the I don't know. Confidence isn't quite the right word, but I know some people, you know, are struggling with like imposter syndrome. And Mm -hmm. so i wary to try to ask somebody if they will be your mentor or reach out and connect in that way. So, again, I I look to the leaders, you know, look for that person that's struggling because they may have the confidence to ask, but they
0: definitely will need it. Oh, that's such a good point, because some people just are too timid and too respectful and too restrained, and they're not going to just, you know, barge in and say, I have a problem. Can you help me sort through this? We may have to look to, to people among us or lower than us to bring them up with us. Yeah, Exactly.
2: I'm going to ask you one more question, but I want you to tell us how people can get in touch with you. What I I definitely think if you're a working mom, you probably want to get on your newsletter and tell us where
0: you can do all of that. My website is SusanLandersMD.com. You can connect with me. You can subscribe to my newsletter. I have free resources there. There's a burnout checklist that's free for working moms and a little solutions guide. I love to talk about working mom burnout. I have a blog, too. so, And I did write a book. I wrote a book called So Many Babies that chronicles my life as a neonatologist and a working mom over 34 years. My kids are all grown now, all happily out of the nest, doing their own thing. And I wanted to be honest in my book. I wanted to tell stories about how difficult it was to make it all work, the mistakes that I made to reassure other people that this is a hard job. Women take on a lot these days and it's not easy and we're not getting the support that we need from other humans. We're getting a lot of our support from social media, which is not, doesn't feel quite as good. Sometimes it's even harmful. And then we're isolating ourselves. And so I wanted my book to just be one more thing that would be reassuring to somebody who's trying to do it all. And I confess that I, the first half of my career, I was work to live. I was my work. I was a typical baby boomer. I am a doctor. I am good at this, and I'm going to go do this, and I can do everything. And of course, you learn you can't do everything, and you pick and choose the things you can and cannot do. And I ended up not being a perfect mother. I was still a good doctor, but I ended up being a good enough mother. Mm -hmm. And I talk in my book about what that means what it means for me, and what it means for younger women. And I've had a lot of really good response from other women about this concept of being a good enough mother. You're working, hopefully you're fulfilled in your job, hopefully you like what you do, and you're not with your children all the time, but you're there when they need you, and you manage to Make it to most of the things in their lives that are important, and most of the things that you want to be a part of. But you can't do both at the same time. It is just not going to work. And we all struggle to figure that out. And when we figure it out, we sit down and we say, I'm really, I guess I was really a good enough mother. And I asked my kids if they believed that. And they all three said, yeah, well, we're pretty independent because you weren't around very much, but you were around enough. And I, I'm taking that to be positive. And maybe other workaholic type women, career women are going to fall in the same traps that I did. But you can have a full-time career and raise a family it's just really, really difficult. We haven't talked at all about how hard it is to learn to take care of yourself. (laughs) And I I bet you talk with your coaching clients about that all the time. Absolutely. And I think that's the best lead in for,
2: (laughs) I have have a free gift out there for y'all that's called the three reasons self-care makes career stress worse. And the one thing that actually works. Oh you good. Can, you can pick that up at elevatefreegift.com. So open up your browsers, you guys. Type in elevatefreegift.com. Get the three reasons self-care makes your career stress worse. And also type in Susanlandersmd.com because you want to get, I'm going to put this in the show links, but you want to get it right now, That the Solutions for Burnout in Working Mothers. So you want that free gift. You want to get on the mailing lists. And okay, so here's my question. When you were, before you started having the depression, before you made that big switch to create some sort of balance in your life, or, you know, as much as a working mother can. What advice would you give to that woman before she started becoming depressed? What would you tell her if you could go back and tell her
0: something now? I would tell her that with only so many hours in the day, she had to be on her own list, she had to matter meaning her physical and mental health had to matter, that when she felt stressed, she had to find ways to recover from that stress. When she was fatigued, she had to rest. When she was around her children, she had to be present with them. I was really good at playing with my kids. I always liked to play, and, and, and that was something that I had to remind myself, go home and play with your kids. But the lesson was I worked too much and I did not take care of myself. I mm-hmm. gave everything to my job and everything to my children. My poor husband, I guess he got leftovers, but I i would have changed how I took care of me. And I, it took me about 10 years to self-destruct in that kind of mindset. You can't be everything to everybody except yourself for very long. And I only lasted about 10 years. So the sooner you learn to take care of yourself in ways that are really effective, what works for you, right? I, I never did meditation, but man, I love exercise and I love playing with my children and I love meeting with friends and laughing and, and having coffee and whatnot. And so each of us has to figure out how to be okay with taking care of ourselves. I mean, self-care is really not selfish. It is really important. And I learned that the hard way.
2: Well, and that's one of the things, like we have these ideas about what self-care is. Oh, I have to make the time to go do this and blah, 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 like blah, Uh, blah, blah. But the reality is when you take care of yourself fully and completely, you actually have clarity about where to spend your energy. Yes. And that's that's a big thing. But running around trying to do all the self-care things, that's not going to do it. That's Mm -mm. not. And that's what Mm -mm. everybody is trying to do. Oh, I'm going to take a self-care day. I'm good. So that's why my free gift is really important for people to understand. Yeah. Yeah especially if you're a mother you definitely are probably riding that edge of burnout whether you know yep. it or not yep. so make sure you get Dr. Susan's free gift too off of her website and in the show links well I wish we could go on talking because I know we can talk about so many I know. things it's so fun
0: i love this this is just great and i love what you're doing you keep it up working moms working women career women need this we we need to learn how to take care of ourselves learn how to be okay in the world be a good worker be a good mom be a good partner be a good friend We want to do those things. Those things make us happy. Exactly. We want to have joy in our lives. I was lucky to be a doctor. It gave me so many rewarding feelings. I love seeing my little patients get better and grow and thrive. And I love seeing my own children grow and thrive. And so if you find some joy in your work, and some joy in your children and your family, you're going to be fine. You really are. But you've got to also be okay with who you are. Exactly. And that is the perfect
2: place to wrap this up. Remember, everybody, when we feel good about who we are and what we do, we create joy and elevate humanity. Thank you, Dr. Susan. We will see the rest of you next time on Be
1: the Wolf. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be the Wolf. Please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.